I'm going to move on to our scripture reading for today, which will be from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the, in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Before we jump into our time in Colossians, I wanted to uh, plug in one very important event. I know you've heard from announcement that we're going to be doing the Oak Tree Run. Uh, I just want to give you guys a little bit of background on what Oak Tree Run is because I know the tagline is Run for the Orphans. Oak Tree Project, they've been around for many years now here in, in Seoul. And really, it, it's, 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 it fills a very important need. So in Korea, as, as an orphan, at 18, you are basically forced out of your orphanage by law, left to sort of make it on your own, right? It's really hard to make it as an 18-year-old with support. Without support, it's very difficult. Without family, without supportive network, many of these orphans fall into terrible work, whether it's... it's um, Sex trafficking, cults, gangs, it's, it's just easy for these, these organizations to pick them up because they have no support. So really, um, Oak Tree Project came about to really fill that need. So it really aids, the Oak Tree Project aids Korean orphans in college. This is a scholarship that they need to apply and really qualify for, so it's not for everybody. By provide, but but when, once you get into this program, you, you are provided a mentor. Some of our church members have served as a mentor, a family atmosphere, and financial support. So their greatest goal, Oak Tree's greatest goal, is to provide a loving care for these students and help them, help them succeed in life. Not just you know, become a Christian, but really to succeed in life and really change the cycle of uh, the poverty and struggles and things like that. And, and so this is an amazing program amazing scholarship program. Uh, I want to just encourage us. November 13th is the run, 9 a.m., but sign-ups end this coming Wednesday. It, it, I was surprised to realize sign-ups are way earlier. In Korea, we do things very last minute. We can't do that this time. You need to sign up by next Wednesday, uh, and, and 100% of what is received will be given to for this project. We're going to meet, right, November 13th, it's right next to our church. We're really funny. We're in Wangshimni. They met like five minutes from where we were now. We moved here. They also moved to run. I don't know, I don't know what happened. We, we have to go. They're literally next. You know how you, go, you park the car, you go across to Olympic Park? It's right there. So, so at, at 9 o'clock, we're going to do the run. And I want to encourage every one of us to go and run. Um, I'm going to try to do 10K, right? We'll see. That might be comical on its own. But... Um, after that, to, to even uh, encourage more, we're going to do church at the park. We've done this before. Last time, Oak Tree ran. So at 9 o'clock, you could do the 5K, 10K. You could do half marathon or the full marathon. At, by 11 o'clock, I don't think anyone's doing full marathon, may, maybe. At 11 o'clock, we're going to meet at that place. So if you can't run for whatever reason, you can't be there at the run, just meet us at the park. We will not be here November 13th. At one p, if you show up, no one's gonna be here, right? At eleven o'clock, we're gonna we're gonna give you more more details through our social media, through website, where to meet. But it's gonna be this, there's a little private area. We've did events there before where we're gonna have a short 
worship service, very, very, very short worship service, and then we're going to order pizza and hang out. So this is going to be a whole day thing. What I encourage you guys, if you did not sign up, please, please sign up for this. Also for students or for those that cannot afford to give, I have found other givers. So if you just want to run, you can simply email admin at kingscrossworld.com for the link, and then you can sign up for free as well. Only if you can't afford it. If you can afford it, let's do this, right? So uh, I want to really encourage you guys. I'm saying this because it's this Wednesday. That's the last day to sign up. You can't, you can't sign up after that. So please, 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 let's do this together. Uh, this is a heart of what we want to do as a church that values championing the city, church that, that wants to see redemption and, and restoration. This is an amazing opportunity, all right? Awesome. All right, thank you, thank you, Dio. We didn't plan that. He wasn't paid for that. All right, second, uh, I'm sorry, not Second Corinthians, Colossians chapter two. We'll jump in right here. We uh, today we'll be looking once again at the Paul's letter to a church in Colossae. We've been in it for the last several weeks, and we're going to be here for a few more weeks until the retreat. And one of the primary purpose of this letter uh, was for Paul to help navigate the struggling church in Colossae as they fight off these false teachers, right? Colossae was a church plant. Paul did not plant it. Disciples of Paul planted this church. They were growing. They were doing really well. And these false teachers begin to enter the church with these false teachings, and they're struggling. People are leaving the church. There's division. And now Paul writes to really encourage the struggling church with this amazing masterpiece now we know as the book of Colossians. And today we're going, to pick, we're going to pick up the letter from verse 6. I know only verse 6 and 7 was read. We're going to cover the whole chapter. Don't worry, I'm not going to go longer than 35 minutes. I recognize I've been going longer the last several weeks. I'm not. I've prepared. But we're going to cover the whole chapter. So, so follow with me. If you have your Bibles, just open it up and we'll just walk through it together. We're going to pick up from verse 6 all the way to end. So really, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, leading to our passage is really an extended encouragement that Paul gives, that so Paul so beautifully lays out what he has done in all of chapter 1. It's a summary of chapter 1, this idea of Christ being supreme, that even if you don't have anything, if you have Jesus, that's everything you need in order for you to succeed. That's Paul's message, encouraging the church. And then, and then in, in verse, verse 2, Paul tells the church in chapter 2, verse 2, that he is toiling, he is working, or he is struggling so that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to stand firm in Christ. And again, he, he says it again in verse 3, in Christ, in whom all hidden, hidden are treasures of wisdom and knowledge, warning against any delusion that may come by the plausible claims of these false teachers, so Paul continues to charge them, stand firm. Guys, do not, do not give up. Do not leave the church. Do not let, be led astray by these false teachings. Stand firm. And this idea of standing firm that we find in verse 6 and the rest of the chapter, this, the theme will be carried from verse 6 all the way to the end of chapter 2. And really, Paul now dives into what it means for you and I to stand firm in Christ. Especially if, if 
we are facing some type of opposition or challenges. And we know the church in Colossae, they were, they were up against a, a, a very tough task. These false teachers entered, they had influence, they were great orators, and they convinced people that they needed more than Christ. So Paul says, no, all you need is Christ. So three major ways I want to divide the text, or three encouragements that I find in all of chapter 2. There are two warnings and one reminder. So two warnings and one reminder. Two don'ts and one do, if you're taking notes. So the first warning that Paul says begins in verse 8. Do not be captivated by man-made philosophies. Verse 8, the verb, take you captive, in chapter 2, verse 8, is a rare one. Actually, this is the only place that is used in all of Scripture. This idea of taking captive. It vividly expresses the danger of being carried off as plunder. Which people of Israelites understood what that meant, right? Knowing their history. And it really highlights, Paul is trying to highlight the idea of passively being drifted away from the truth. In in verse 8, the word philosophy, Paul is not talking about love of wisdom. That's what it literally means, philosophy in Greek, love of wisdom. He's not speaking against intellectually processing our faith. He's really confronting these twisted teachings of these false teachers, the Gnosticism that entered the church. And these Gnostic teachers were teaching, their teachings were very mysterious, very complicated, hard to understand, a lot of astrology, and and, and very, very snooty, right? But worst of all, it was deadly because it had a little bit of everything, right? Some familiar truth from the Hebrew religion, with the enticing mystery of the Eastern mysticism and the Greek philosophy. It's like mixing of all the things that people like and said, here, here's a better version of Christianity. So many were led astray, right, by these false teachers. Paul had, had to write this letter. Again, they were gifted orators. They were great talkers. They spoke, you know, not only in a way that was convincing, but it was very much intimidating. You know, you, you, you go to class, you go to college, you go to class, and your professor talks, and you're like, I don't know what he's talking about. I know he's smart. I just don't know what he's talking about. I don't even know how to ask the question. You know, like, you, you guys, none of you guys? I, I felt like that first year of college was like, I don't even know what to ask. I don't even know what he's saying, right? Right, there were, there were this gifted um, orators, and there were, there, it was scary for people to be like, are you sure, you know, that's not Christianity? And of course, this this promise of great spiritual awakening enticed many new believers. You mean I could be better than Tom? You mean I could be better than Sarah? I could be higher rank? I could be a deacon or an elder? And this really had had a big influence in the way people thought about Christianity. Fast forward 2,100 years later, we live in a country uh, that is home to some bizarre and influential cults. Uh, there are many cults. I mean, a lot of foreigners get approached by these many cults. I know, I know personally of several people whose lives have been shattered 
by these cults, whether because they were in it themselves or because they had someone they love joining these cults. I have friends still struggling with that. And again, unfortunately, these cults really target, often target foreigners, right? Because we're new to this environment, we're not next to a, a support system, so it's very easy, right? And, and then they're like, oh, let's do a Bible study. Oh, I'm a Christian, let's do a Bible study. And then six months later, you realize you're in a cult. So we definitely need to guard ourselves against false teaching in that way. Yet obviously, we live in a different spiritual climate. You see, the early church and, and the church throughout its early history were constantly under attacks from these false teachings. I mean, this is not unique to Colossians. They were always constantly being attacked right, by these false teachers and these false beliefs. The, the heretics the church faced throughout its history were horrible, horribly wrong, but they were also terribly brilliant. Their creeds were in form of codes. Their claims were definite. They were learned, and, and their doctrines were, were perverse and clearly wrong, but articulate. They were like fierce wolves. Yet for majority of us, like today, when we think about our modern spiritual climate, we don't have these cults knocking down our doors, trying to convert us. I mean, for most of us. In fact, a different spirit characterizes our age. We live in a spiritual age where the idea of virtue and doctrine is significantly less important. All the advancements we made in society and technology in just 100 years, right? It has, in many ways, convinced you and I to assume that we can actually live on bread alone. And we are under false assumption that we can create our future, even try to defeat death. Silicon Valley CEOs are spending millions of dollars trying to prolong life or trying to defeat death. So in this climate... We, including all of us, are great at explaining, explaining away our guilt without addressing the sin underneath it. We love the idea of peace and reconciliation without willingness to truly repent. Heresy in today's climate looks a bit different from the time of Paul's letter, but it's still there. Listen to a man named Caleb Knox. He, he wrote an article about the topic of modern-day heresy, and I thought it rang really true. And Caleb Knox, he says, the modern heretic is not zealous like the early church, but they are mild. That is his danger. I have found that those who practice this domesticated Christianity rarely have the intellectual might or will to explain their beliefs clearly. Given its undefined nature, he says, I myself struggle to name the modern-day heresy. It's really unclear what it is, but we can at least say, and he says this, the modern-day heresy, it is the disbelief in the firm belief. It is disbelief in firm belief, the belief that it does not matter what we believe. Belief that it does not matter. It's not that important what we believe. And when you think about how faith is being the modern-day Christianity, we think about the modern-day preaching, modern-day 
community and how we do church, it's not surprising. Right? And when we continue to approach our faith in sort of wishy-washy, mild, passive way, it's so easy, it creates this, this room. It creates this opportunity for these misguided beliefs to arise. There are many misguided beliefs I think you know, average Christians carry today. I could name you like 10, but let me just point to two things, two common misguided beliefs that are prevalent among the current church, among the modern church. One is this idea of exaggerated view of grace. Because Jesus died for me, because I hear the gospel every week, anything goes. Grace is not a tool that transforms us from inside out, but grace simply serves as a license for you and I to live our lives in whatever way we want to. In fact, for a large number of Christians, their faith is not marked by repentance. A hundred years before, there was so much written about repentance, the, the importance of repentance, confession in the church, the liturgy of confession. You don't get any of that. Because it's not, it's not marked by repentance. Repentance, biblically, remember, literally means to make a U-turn. You were going one direction, you repent, you go to the other direction. It's an action-packed word. But modern-day Christianity, often it's marked by a continuous cycle of sin, confession, sin, confession, sin. See, many of us think we are repenting when we confess. But biblically, confession doesn't merely, and repentance doesn't literally mean you just tell God what you did wrong. There's a, there's a willingness to change and live life differently. That's a one, one thing I see. Not, I mean, I, I drew an illustration of drinking, but drinking is a one easy, I mean, it's a low-hanging food. But there are many ways. Second common misguided belief. Deification of men. Let me explain what that means. For a modern day Christians, for many, not, not all of us, modern, modern day Christians, when they think about Christianity, Jesus is not their Lord. He's their maybe executive assistant, maybe someone who helps you get to where you want to go. He's there to support you, to help you, to make your vision into reality. But he's not the door. He'll hold, he'll hold the door for you, but he's not the door. He's not the goal. He's there to get you there. But often when we approach faith, he's not the goal. So even when the way we approach Scripture, when, when you think about modern-day Christians approaching Scripture, it's very casual. We assume, maybe you don't say it out loud, but when, as you read Scripture, we assume the Bible must live up to my standards. We judge the Bible based on my morality rather than the God of the Bible judging me based on His. And so when the Scripture contradicts our feelings and preference, rather than crucify our feelings, what do we do? We close the book. It's like leasing a car. For many Christians, Christianity today, it's like leasing a car. Let me explain. See, when you lease a car, you're going to choose the car you like. 
You're going to pick the color. You're going to put gas because the car has to go, right? Or electric, you got you to charge it now. We'll even wash it. We'll invest into making the car fit to our needs and what we want. But only to a point. You're not going to change the engine of a car you leased. Why? Because as soon as it fails to serve our needs, or, some, or, or as soon as something better comes along, new model, new year, we're, we're, we're ready to move on. We want the benefits of Christianity without the responsibility. We're happy to lease Jesus until we find something that seems better, less inconvenient, and more effective in helping us get to where we want to go. And so Paul, his warning 2,000 some years ago is still very much relevant to us because that's the type of heresy that the church was against. That's a first don't. Second don't, second warning, Paul says, don't let anyone disqualify you by man-made rules. Everyone say rules. Verse 16, Paul's warning deals with two main issues. What they ate, food in their mouth, what days they celebrated, festivals and Sabbath. Because these were two very relevant topics and two very things that the false teachers continue to demand from the people. Right? These false teachers demanded that every Christian at the time go back to following the Old Testament dietary laws. Right, refraining from food that was once considered clean and unclean and now go back to that system, the, the law that Jesus abolished when he came. They also demanded all believers return to observing all Jewish festivals and, and even the way they did Sabbath in the Old Testament days before Christ. So Paul is really addressing from verses uh, 16 to 23, he's really addressing the issue of legalism. This idea of being legalistic. And, and really, the issue of legalism, we've been battling that from the very beginning of Christianity, right? And what is legalism in, in, in its core, its foundational level? Legalism at the core involves abstracting the law of God from its original context. Abstract, abstracting the law of God from its original context. A legalistic a legalist evaluates, elevates rules and regulation beyond its function and purpose, becoming obsessed with keeping of God's law as an end itself. But, but think about why did God give us the Ten Commandments? For example, why did God give us Ten Commandments in the first place? You see, every time there was a new set of laws that God has established with his people, it was done in a covenantal relationship. Right? The Ten Commandments are a perfect example. The Ten Commandments were given not at the beginning of them, God and the people getting to know each other. No, it's after God had, had rescued them out of slavery, established this relationship as an in this relationship, if you keep these rules, these laws, it's, it's, it's beneficial not only for our relationship, for you. It's actually really helpful that you don't cheat on your wife. You don't you know, cheat on your wife with your neighbor's wife. It, it's not beneficial. Like all these rules, it's, it's beneficial for you 
to have no other gods before you, to maintain this relationship, it's, it's, it's best for you. Yet when legalism isolates the law of God from the one who gave the law, we miss the point because the focus becomes about keeping rules without destroying the broader context of God's love and redemption. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson, and he says this about legalism. Legalism is almost as old as Eden itself. In essence, it's, it's any teaching that diminishes or distorts the generous love of God and full freeness of His grace. It then distorts God's graciousness revealed in His law and fails to see law set within its proper context in redemptive history as an expression of a gracious Father. It distorts God's graciousness revealed in his law and fails to see law set within its proper context in redemptive history as an expression of a gracious father. Is that what you guys think when you think about Ten Commandments? Oh, gracious father. But it is. That's why God created the Ten Commandments for Israelites so that they could see behind the law, behind the architect of these rules, see a gracious father who, 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 who cares and who loves, who has compassion. In fact, all of the laws of God reveal the goodness of God. Yet, yet, so often we fall in love with the law while missing God's heart behind it. So one example. It will really bother you, say you went out to Itaewon Friday night. And you went to a bar to meet friends, not to drink, just to meet a friend. Maybe evangelize you're there. And out of the corner, you see me holding a cigarette. It will really bother you, right? It will really it would, it would bother me if I saw like other pastor like smoking a cigarette at a bar Friday night. But would it bother you if I was sitting at Joe's Cafe as you're leaving church? I was just downing a whole popping suit. Like just I don't care. I'm so hungry after preaching. I might just eat this whole popping suit, which is totally unhealthy for my body. Would that bother you? No, you'd be like, oh, Pastor Tang really likes popping soup. But both things, smoking and eating popping soup, they're not good for my body. And that's why God set up these premise, right? Our body is temple of God and we ought to honor our body. But we get stuck with someone smoking or drinking versus someone eating a, 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 whole, a whole cake. We don't think about that. But, the, but, but when we fall in love with this idea of the law, we're, we're just thinking about the action instead of what's hard behind it. God gave us these parameters, these laws, so that we would, it would be good for us. I saw some of you guys' faces, like smoking. <laughs> but again, all laws of God exist to reveal the goodness of God. So Paul says, when we... When we miss God's heart behind it, verse 19 of our passage, he says, we have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body is supported and held together. together. Paul says, when you fall in love with the law and, and not fall in love with the giver of the law, you are walking around like a body without a head. Not a pretty picture. So two warnings. Heresy and legalism. 
So what will save us? That's the question. That's, this is where we're going to land. What's the remedy that Paul presents to the church in, in Colossae and also to us? Here's a third and final observation. And I think this is the remedy. And, and, and this was the passage we read, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul says in verse 6, just look, look with me very carefully. As you receive Jesus as the Lord, that's circle Jesus the Lord, in that truth, walk in that truth, carry on your faith, trusting in the Lordship of Christ. You see, verse 6, Jesus Christ, Lord, sums up all that Paul had stated about Jesus thus far in the letter. It is a dynamic, comprehensive title. It is a fitting title for Paul. In fact, all of the book of Acts, if you do a word study, the title Savior is only mentioned twice. Did you guys know that? In the book of Acts, twice. But the title Lord, 92 times. You cannot call someone your Lord and refuse to submit. So Paul isn't simply saying, walk in Jesus, even though that's really good. He's highlighting and emphasizing the absolute need for you and I to walk in Jesus' lordship. The verb to walk is in present active imperative, which means it is a daily, moment by moment, daily commitment to walk in that reality of Jesus' lordship. And really what Paul is saying is just as you've entered salvation, which came through Jesus the Lord, continue to walk. Verse 7, Paul doubles down on this charge with these words, be rooted, built up, and established in the reality of Jesus' lordship. I love imageries. If you haven't noticed, I love imageries in scripture. They just bring out the meaning. These imageries of being, being rooted and built up, right? They do a wonderful job of helping us better grasp what Paul is talking about here. Rooted and built up is really the tree in Psalm 1. Remember the tree in Psalm 1? Blessed is, right? The tree in Psalm 1. Just as a tree planted by the streams of living water, believers are to be planted in the soil of Jesus. And there's this absolute dependence on the part of the believer. The deeper, the more widespread our roots in Christ, the greater shade, fruit, beauty we can provide. The, the verb built up in verse 7 literally means to build upon. Not just build, but build upon. Paul says, make this your foundation, the lordship of Jesus. In fact, all three words, rooted, built up, established in verse 7, or strengthened in other translations, are written in a passive mood. You know what that means? It is God who does the establishing. It is the God who is rooting us. It is God who is building us up. He does all the hard work, and we reap the benefit. But let's place this whole verse 6 and 7 in the greater context of chapter 2, all of chapter 2. 
You see, the root of both legalism and abusing grace, two things we talked about, abusing grace, exaggerated view of grace, and legalism. It seems like there are two opposite things, right? Like the older brother and the younger brother of the story seems like they're the two opposite things. But really, the root of legalism and the root of excessive view of grace, it's the same. It's easy to assume that two are complete opposites, yet they are more similar than you think. Both a law-abiding sinner, like the older brother in the story, and the law-breaking sinner share the same assumption. When you, Pastor uh, Elder, Elder Evans spoke about Luke 15, about the two brothers. If you really read that story, they both share the same assumption. They both refuse to believe in the love and the graciousness of the Father. They react differently. One leaves, one stays, but won't come into celebration. But really at the heart of it is the same issue with the Father. Father, you are not gracious. You are not good. That's why the younger son of the story went away to faraway country only to realize the Father is actually gracious. And the older son refused to enter the celebration. They did what they did because they refused to believe that their father was good and gracious. They failed to see the true delight of obedience. Instead, from obe- obedience is something imposed on them by their unloving father whose love is conditional and who is unwilling to give them blessings unless they earn it with their own actions. And this is why, and, I, I, and this is where I land, why Paul, I think Paul charges us to keep on walking in Jesus, to be rooted in Jesus, to be built up in Jesus. Why? You see the solution for both the legalist and someone who has excessive view of grace, the abuse grace is not a little do- dose of other. Like you tell someone who's legalistic, the, the solution is not come over to this side or, or someone who is, has excessive view of grace. You don't tell them, come over to this side, become a little more legalistic or become less legalistic. The solution is not little dose of each other. Pushing a legalist towards the other side will not bring the change, the transformative change that the scripture is calling us to experience. So if it's not, you step the other way, one step, you step. If if the solution is not that, then what is the solution? The gospel. This is why the gospel is the only true remedy that is able to deliver us from the age-old lie of the serpent. The gospel reveals to us the love of a father who gives us everything he has. First, his son to die for us on that terrible cross. But also, after we are saved, we are given the, the Holy Spirit, His Spirit, to live in us. It is only the gospel that can transform your heart, my heart of stone, into heart that is flesh, that, the heart of flesh that is soft. And only through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, our loves can finally be transformed. Our obedience are transformed from the sense of obligation to joy. So, so, so King's Cross, just as Paul encouraged the church, I encourage us, let's continue to walk in the Lordship of Christ. 
I, I promise to go shorter, so I'm not going to unpack the Lordship of Christ. There are many sermons about Lordship of Christ. Google it, you'll find it. Um, but really, what does that mean for you? Is Jesus really your Lord? That's something, that's a homework for us. You're like, oh, homework, yes, homework. To really think about it, is Jesus really our Lord? Am I really living a life that has been transformed? Do, am I a heretic? Is there, is there heresy within me? Things that I believe about God and things I believe of myself that needs to be changed. All that stuff, that's homework. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we, um, what can we say? Uh, what can we but repent of our, our arrogance, Lord. Repent of our ways that we have not honored the gospel, not honored you, Jesus, as our King, as we sang. We sing these songs weekly, and yet often it's our confession that our lives, we live our lives like we are the King's. that you said you are the door and all we want is for you to hold the door for us so that we can walk in and live the life that we want. So Lord, once again, I want to take this time to confess you are the king that we need. You are Christ Jesus, Lord. Holy Spirit, pray you would continue to convict our hearts. Even the things that we did not talk about, things that we believe about you and things, the false assumptions that we believe about ourselves. Lord, would you at this time, Holy Spirit, that you are in us, continue to flush that out. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the true remedy. We thank you for the, the image of the Father in Luke 15. That's who you are. Continue to move us. Continue to transform us. Make us softer, Lord. Make us humble. Just in we pray. Amen.